Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Calestus Juma, is a prolific author who focuses on the intersection of society, science, and international development. He is a professor and director of the Science, Technology, and Globalization Project at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard. Calestus grew up in a flood-prone village on the shores of Lake Victoria in Kenya, and in this episode, he describes how his upbringing inspired his interest in understanding the relationship between nature, economic development, and technological change. We kick off discussing his forthcoming book out in July titled Innovation and Its Enemies, Why People Resist New Technologies, which includes, among other things, a fascinating discussion about what the history of margarine can teach us about the future of global development. This conversation was a delight. Calestus tells some great stories and offers some intriguing insights about trends in global development. And if you're not already, you should definitely follow him on Twitter at Calestus. And I'm at Mark L. Goldberg. And as always, you can get in touch with me there or via globaldispatchespodcast.com. And a huge, huge thank you to everyone out there who is sharing this show with your friends and colleagues on social media and beyond. It is just so gratifying to see that so many people out there are interested and enthusiastic about these kinds of in-depth, wonky, fun conversations about global affairs and the world at large. And now here is Calestus Juma. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My, my forthcoming book, which is entitled Innovation and Its Enemies, uh, looks at why people resist new technologies. This is a, an idea that really was inspired by my own childhood. Uh, when I was young, I lived in a community that uh, was constantly struggling with the balancing between the new and the old. Uh, it was a community at the mouth of two rivers on the shores of Lake Victoria that got flooded uh, almost twice a year. And so when it gets flooded, the old gets swept away and then people rebuild. And when they rebuild, uh, they don't rebuild exactly uh, the way the houses looked uh, in the past. And so there will be debates about uh, whether to make them exactly like they looked before or whether to deviate a little bit based on changes in builders, the speed at which houses were being built, the materials available to the community at the time. Uh, and so, so I grew up in a community where people were constantly debating this balance between maintaining tradition 
and adapting to adapting to change. But it sounds like they were forced to do so every two years. That's kind of remarkable uh, no, that that wouldn't like cause people to just leave that that community. The, 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 it flooded twice a year, twice a year in April oh, and in August. But the reason the people didn't leave was because uh, the floods were both a threat but also an opportunity. Whenever it flooded, as soon as the water subsided. Uh, people could go back to their homes and they would have uh, will uh, have very healthy and abundant crops uh, because the floods brought with them uh, a lot of topsoil from the highlands ah okay so it, it was, was not all a disaster there was some it was not lining, always yeah. a, in fact the more disastrous it was the greater the opportunities that it came with uh, so again that's another area where people kind of try to balance between both risk uh, and opportunity, and that's why they never. Some left partly because of uh, growth in the population. Uh, some people migrated to urban areas, but there was a constant population of around forty thousand people uh, in that community. And so these ideas of uh, resistance to change or figuring out when to adopt new ideas and when not to uh, really go back to my early early childhood. Best of that's really inspired by the. The drama, the drama, the ecological drama in the community I grew up in. Uh, the, in the book, you you use examples from history, right? Uh, in which technological innovation causes some sort of like displacement or anxiety uh, among people. Yes. Yeah, so what I do in the book is I go back and basically distance myself a little from my own uh, up, upbringing. I also distance myself from the more immediate uh, subject I've worked on, like genetically modified crops, which are a a source of major global controversy. I stepped back from those issues and asked myself a very basic question, which was, is this something unique to my circumstances and the technologies I've worked on, or are we dealing here with something a lot more fundamental uh, and more enduring over time? And that's what sent me back to looking at historical historical cases like the debates over uh, the introduction of coffee from the Middle East, from Ethiopia through the Middle East to Europe, uh, which was a, a 250-year debate. Uh, I looked at margarine in the United States, uh, looked at uh, refrigeration. Actually, most of my cases are American cases, mm-hmm. which kind of undermines the, co- the conventional view that Americans are always uh, open to new ideas. So, so- Talk me through one of those uh, case studies. I'm fascinated. What was the introduction of margarine to the U.S. market like? What sort of controversy did it cause? This is something I am totally unaware of, I should say. Margarine, which was an invention, a European invention, was a product of a a challenge, a competition uh, issued by Napoleon to find a substitute for butter, uh, first uh, adopted in the Netherlands and then found its way uh, to the United States. And uh, when it got here, uh, really faced enormous uh, challenge and opposition from the dairy industry, because it was a direct challenge uh, to the dairy industry. And there, it was it was being questioned uh, not so much because it was new, but because it was uh, a threat to the livelihoods of the dairy industry. And so the the opponents felt uh, basically there was a perception of loss to their livelihoods. And so they fought it by uh, 
manufacturing all sorts of arguments against margarine, claiming that it caused impotence or loss of hair uh, or stunted, people would be stunted because of uh, consuming margarine. Uh, in fact, some of the early claims about uh, the health impacts of margarine later on turned out to be true, uh, but the early opposition was simply driven by uh, economic interest. Yeah, well, well, you know, Napoleon was very short, right? So, so the stunted <laughs> argument might have uh, some basic basis. Um, so, but how, how did they do this? Like, like they they just manufactured a controversy around margarine to protect their own economic interests. Yeah, it's a protection of economic interests, but they did that essentially by lobbying. The the origin of some of the of some of America's uh, early lobbying uh, activities, in fact, go back to the to the early opposition to opposition to margarine. There were uh, legislative measures like uh, labeling it, making sure that uh, margarine was not produced anywhere near uh, where butter was being produced. Uh, requiring that if you sold margarine in restaurants, you had to disclose to the consumers that uh, you sold it, restricting the quantities uh, that could actually be sold. Uh, so it was a long, it lasted close to 60 years. It wasn't really until the Second World War that uh, this country started to really see the uh, economic benefits of it because it was cheaper than, uh, than butter. Uh, and some of the debates ended up in the White House with uh, becoming a huge political issue with the legislation, legislative reform, which started at the state level. And then we had a, a federal law adopted and it required basically a, a reversal of those federal laws to open up the, the market for margarine. There are still parts of the United States like uh, Wisconsin where there are those old laws are still on the books. You could actually be fined for selling margarine. Huh. So, I mean, this obviously draws parallels to the current um, debate in the United States that you referenced earlier over genetically modified uh, crops and, and organisms. I mean, I'm calling you from, from Colorado, uh, which is sort of ground zero for some of these debates. We had a, a ballot initiative that was defeated um, that Seems sounds like a lot like we you're discussing with with margarine that that required uh, products sold in grocery stores here to identify whether there are genetically modified organisms in uh, the 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 food being sold. Uh, it was defeated, um, but uh, you know the the I, I have to imagine that there are lessons that can be applied from the margarine story to the current debate over GMOs. Yeah, it's the closest of all the products I've looked at. Uh, really, the store of margarine is the closest to GMO debate in the United States. The debate in Europe on GMOs is slightly different, uh, and whereas here the strategy adopted, which is to try to push fast for uh, state laws and then eventually push for federal law, is very similar to, to the margarine story, almost to the letter. Um, and so what does this... Um what are the conclusions of your, your forthcoming book uh, apply? Like how can they be applied to our conversation about international development more broadly? Like after reading your book, after learning from the examples in your book, what lessons can we apply to uh, how we might do international development better or more efficiently? Or, or does that, or does your book say anything to that effect? It, it does because one of the main uh, lessons that we learn from these cases uh, is that you have a better chance of a, of acceptance of new technologies if they if those incumbent industries feel that 
they are likely to benefit from that technology and that it's not going to displace the activities. So, so if you take the obvious example of, uh, of uh, energy, uh, if you're using fossil fuels and there is the opportunity to use uh, renewable energy sources like solar power, uh, those who are in, investing in, in the coal plants, if they don't feel that they can benefit from uh, solar energy, they are obviously going to oppose it. So the question of being inclusive, uh, of exploring avenues by which those who are likely to be affected by new technologies can also see themselves as potential beneficiaries uh, is really important. So in a way, it's really about a democratic approach to uh, technological uh, advancement. You also have the corollary to that, which is uh, if you keep referring to new technologies as disruptive, <laughs> and you want to disrupt incumbent industries, you shouldn't be surprised if those industries dig in and also try to disrupt you. Huh. That's that's fascinating because it's such a buzzword, and it's and and the negative connotations of that, at least as applied to the to the to international development imperatives, are never, I think, fully appreciated. So I, I, yeah. that's interesting yeah. how, how you put that. Yeah, so include, feeling inc included uh, is to me, because the idea of in inclusive innovation means that society is sharing both the risks and the benefits. But if you separate out the risks and the benefits, you get pushback. Uh, so if society perceives that the benefits are likely to occur in the long run, but the risks will be uh, experienced in the short run, they will oppose the technology or if they perceive that the benefits will accrue to a small section of society like corporations, but the risks are likely to be spread more widely in society, again, they will oppose that technology. Uh, well, I look forward to reading your book, um, and I'd love to, to pivot and talk a little bit more uh, about how we started this conversation, which is uh, where you come from and, and your upbringing. So you, you say you grew up on the shores of Lake Victoria in a village, in a town that, that flooded, uh, twice a year. Uh, were your were your family in in the were, were your parents farmers? What kind of work did they do? My parents. My father was a carpenter, but most people in that community kind of performed a variety of functions. He was a carpenter. He was also a fisherman and a farmer. Uh, and people changed jobs over time. My mom was a homemaker. She was also a farmer. Later on in her life, she became a businesswoman to try to earn money to get us uh, through school. Uh, so, so, so this idea of adaptation to change, uh, finding new opportunities and, and experimenting with them is something that I saw uh, being as, as part and parcel of the community I grew up in. Do you have um, any particular memory of the first big flood that you experienced? Actually, the earliest, one of my earliest memories was when I was close, roughly two, two years old, uh, moving to establish to a new home because our old home the fl was being flooded so frequently that we could hardly live there. Uh, and so my earliest memories are actually moving to establishing a new home uh, in a new place that was uh, a little drier and uh, higher up, um, kind of the high, at a slightly higher altitude uh, than, uh, than where we my 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 family was born, which was in, in the lowlands. Um, uh, what sort of educational opportunities were available to you uh, in your in your hometown? 
I, I would say two, two types of educational opportunities. One is the regular school. So I went to a regular primary school, elementary school, and, and high school in the area. But I, th- I actually felt that there was uh, more education outside school than there was in school uh, because of the pace at which things were being done. Like if there was news that it was likely to, we, a community was likely to be flooded. There was a lot of social organization around it to prepare for flooding, to figure out how to house people whose homes were likely to be affected. And then as soon as the, the, the flood subsided, there was a lot of rebuilding, reconstruction, uh, a lot of social organization, thinking through how you rebuild uh, people's home as quickly as possible. I learned a lot, almost as much from those activities as I did in, a, as I did in school. I mean, it sounds like there is just a regular, um, like pace and and of of these floods that are so um, uh, just that that sort of are are um, coming so frequently and so often that they um, just contribute to the social organization of of a whole town. And it's kind of just sort of interesting to to think that like weather phenomenon can create such like powerful um, sociological structures uh, in in a town. Yes, and got people to bond very, very strongly because you you came to know about your relatives. Because whenever it flooded in the lowlands, they moved to stay with their uh, with their relatives and friends in the in the drier and higher areas. Uh, so, so these social bonds, knowing who you are, uh, connections, uh, members of your community and relatives were, was a very strong part of the of the of the culture. Uh, and the pace at which it was occurring really kept society literally on its toes. And no two floods were ever the same. Uh, each year or each flood, each season, different homes or different regions will be affected uh, differently because either the, the magnitude of it, the pace at which uh, it was happening. Uh, and so, so you're constantly learning something new. Uh, from these experiences and, and the it, sharing of information. And, and how did you become interested in science and technology uh, in this kind of, in this milieu? I, I think that w- what was going on with all the knowledge or the, the observation of how co- the community was being affected, the discussions around reconstruction, all these were uh, basically opportunities for discovery and creativity and innovation. So, so it was in a way uh, increasing, heavily scientific. People just didn't see it as such, but all the exercises they were going through to observe, uh, to figure out strategies, how to rebuild, how to protect uh, communities, how, how to explore uh, new construction material and methods. These were all scientific. And as the population expanded, uh, new issues arose like uh, people couldn't leave off the traditional crops anymore, uh, like sorghums and millets. These were the traditional staples mm-hmm. in the area. So my, my father, for example, was involved in these expeditions of traveling around, uh, visiting other regions to see if there were any crops they could bring to the, uh, to the community. And so my father was involved in an introduction of cassava. Uh, oh, yeah. That's a very hardy crop. Yeah, yeah. And so, so again, that, that involved a lot of discussion of what the impact of this new crop was likely to be. But people observing it to see how it was grow, how, how it grew, how you cultivated it, 
and the sharing of information around the crop itself, different varieties of cassava were being introduced, some of which were actually poisonous, so, so people needed to know which ones were safe to consume and which ones were not. And, and so, so that, that atmosphere, essentially, it's really a knowledge-intensive activity that forces you to uh, appreciate the importance of the sciences. Uh, so, so, and also to accommodate the, the view that the, the social sciences and natural sciences are part of the same continuum. Because on the one hand, you are discussing the introduction of new crops, but at the same time, you're also discussing their potential impact on society. Do you have, is there like one moment uh, that you could point to that um, makes this point, uh, like a story you could share where the introduction of a crop uh, to your community, I, I suppose you said your, your, your father brought cassava into, into the community, um, demonstrated in like a profound way the intersection of like the biological sciences and the social sciences. I think one occasion that I remember vividly was uh, the emergence of wild pigs in our community, uh, which were then consuming uh, the, the, the cassava. Uh, and that got blamed on my father as the person who brought the wild pigs. Uh, but the truth was that, in fact, wild pigs existed. They didn't have very much to eat. But as soon as... Uh, the crop was available. You had an explosion in their population because they had something. They had something to eat, uh, and so so there you have claims about almost mythological claims um, of uh, my father being basically the the symbol of the arrival of these wild pigs in the community. Uh, but at the same time, there are real. Uh, there was a real explanation, which is one why we needed the cassava in the first place. It's because there wasn't enough land to support traditional crops. Uh, and secondly, there was also the question of just know, knowing how to cultivate, grow it. And then a few years later, you have this debate on, uh, on wild pigs. And I remember my father basically uh, being involved in uh, having to hunt them down at night. And I would accompany them on one of some of these expeditions to try to reduce the wild pig population. And also presumably uh, restore his own reputation in the process. Yeah, yes, yes. And this was one of those unintended consequences. When, when my father was introducing cassava, nobody thought that one of the consequences would be uh, the explosion of, uh, of the wild pig population. And at that point, nobody was debating on whether the cassava had actually helped to save people from famine uh, because the alternative crops had uh, already diminished or disappeared. But the debate was on the impact of, uh, of cassava, not on the fact that cassava actually helped, helped people to find an alternative source of food. Uh, and so my father couldn't make the, that argument. The debate was really about than intended consequences of the cassava, not the risk, the problem that he was trying to solve in the first place. And I see the same debates uh, today uh, taking place, uh, especially in the, this context of genetically modified foods, in that we have this uh, uh, pest-tolerant crops, uh, but we are now we are having very interesting and uh, legitimate debate on their impacts, but we've forgotten the reason why they were introduced in the first place, that we had actually a problem we wanted to solve. 
Um, so how uh, old were you when you left your town? Oh, I didn't leave my town until uh, after high school. Uh, so, so basically 18, uh, 18 years old. That's when I went, left my town to go to a teacher training college, uh, which was in the northern part of Kenya. Uh, and w- uh, what did you teach? I, I trained to actually as an elementary school teacher teaching science to small uh, elementary school kids. Oh, nice. This was, uh, <laughs> that was my first profession. I was very passionate about, uh, about the sciences. There's nothing more exciting in a kid's memory than their first like uh, elementary school, high school teacher with all the fun experiments that they bring to the classroom. Always fun. Um, so, so how long did you spend as, as uh, training as an elementary school teacher? I was I was I taught for four years, and over that period, uh, I was doing a lot of reading on my own, basically educating myself uh, about all sorts of topics, and uh, was writing letters to the editor, uh, which today they call it blogging. Those days we just called it called it letters to the editors. So I was writing, communicating, and expressing myself fairly frequently. And it's through that that this newspaper called the Daily Nation in Nairobi yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. invited me to become uh, the uh, environment and science writer. So I became, basically, that was 1978. I became Africa's first science journalist. <laughs> there you go. All from ri- it's all from writing letters to the editor. It's it's funny, you know. All from blogging. Basically, all from make it a bit more respectable. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, well, this is kind of how it works nowadays, right? You, if, or yeah, at least yeah. I should say it's how it worked in the mid two thousands with blogging. If you're like a really good blogger in the mid two thousands, the bigger people like the Atlantic or the Washington Post would would gobble you up, and and you'd end up working for them ten years later. But I can yeah. see it's 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 nice to see that there is a, a historical precedent to this in the form of letters to the editor. Yeah, and I I meet people who only remember my name because of letters to the editor. Like I appear, I appear on TV, and they have one question to ask: like Are you the same person who used to write letters to the editor? <laughs> That's all they're interested in because there's a whole following. Uh, there are people who are reading, buying the newspaper because they wanted to read my letters, which is the reason why uh, the newspaper invited me to be part of their part of their stuff. So what were some of the, the big stories that you're working on as a science journalist in sub-Saharan Africa? I mean, you know, uh, like, and to what extent did, did politics um, intersect with, with your commentary? Uh, you know, particularly, I suppose, like a volatile time right in the late 70s in, in Kenya. Uh, and my tenure or my tenure at the Daily Nation was very short uh, uh, because when I joined, I was asked to write uh, on environment because the UN environment program had just been established uh, in Nairobi, so environment was becoming uh, a topical issue. Uh, and I wrote a few stories, some of them on industrial pollution. And and I, one day I got a call from a non-profit organization called Environment Liaison Center, which was then headed by a Canadian by the name of Gary Gallon and uh, the chair of that organization was uh, the late uh, environmentalist Nobel laureate uh, Wangari Madai, who called me up yeah. and said, "Oh, we have a, a magazine. You are writing on environment. You, we, th- we think you belong with us." Uh, and this was like in my sixth month in the newspaper, and so we went through some discussions, and 
I opted to go and work for this organization as a writer, help them to set up their magazine called EcoForum. And uh, it was through that that I ended up, in fact, uh, uh, going to the UK to, to study science and technology policy. Um, and one of the one of the areas I really focused on while I was working with the Environment Liaison Center was this interface between environment and development. Uh, because it became very clear that if people were not uh, able to earn a living, it was very difficult to convince them to protect the environment. Uh, something that, again, to me was self-evident given my own my own upbringing. And so this idea of sustainable development uh, to me was uh, almost, was obvious. And, uh, and so I got into development, in fact, through the environmental window hmm. of, uh, of being interested in environment and then arguing that, or being aware that you can't protect the environment if you're hungry. And therefore you need to balance between uh, environmental protection and development goals. Well, I mean, that, that idea is just sort of taken for granted now, but, you know, back, I suppose it was like the 1980s, it was still sort of avant-garde, right? It was avant-garde and environmentalists didn't like it. Still, they, many, many actually don't like it today uh, because many believe that environment, uh, development is a, is a threat to environment. And if you want to protect the environment, uh, you need to slow down the pace of development. There are movements now, including organizations that call, subscribe to the idea of degrowth, who believe that you need to, to reduce the rate, the pace of growth. This There may be some merit in that with the highly industrialized countries, but certainly if you're an African, in an African context, uh, it really doesn't make sense because one of the reasons why people destroy the environment is actually because they are very poor. Um, so did you end up writing like a PhD thesis uh, in, in this program? So, so I went to Sussex, the Science Policy Research Unit, and I had a scholarship from the International Development Research Center in, uh, in Canada, which funded my graduate studies. Uh, and they restricted the work, my work to renewable energy. So I had to do, I had to study renewable energy. So my, my master's dissertation was on a, a solar photovoltaics and my PhD was on ethanol production, looking at Brazil, uh, Zimbabwe and Kenya. Uh, this was, uh, I did that in the in 1986, finished 1986, my PhD and uh, did my master's a few years earlier. So, so I was looking basically at what has now become today really uh, very well established fields, but then uh, at that time it was really way ahead of its time. I remember when I was doing my master's on solar photovoltaics and I wanted to continue to do a PhD, my PhD in the same field one of my professors telling me that this has absolutely no future. Uh -huh. uh, because at that time, it was, it was really, solar cells were really, really expensive, something like 20, $20 $25 per kilowatt hour. Uh, it's now down to uh, 20 cents or something like that. 
I mean, how do you manage a, a situation like that where you um, obviously clearly saw like a, the, the trend towards renewable energy before other people did? Like, how do you convince people that this is actually where the future is is headed? I mean, and are there any maybe current challenges that people who are listening to this who are students or in PhD programs, um, any like tricks or, or tactics that they might use to convince their peers or their professors um, that know what they're studying actually is going to be totally relevant in 20 years and even dominate the discussion? That's a very good question. The one, I wouldn't call it a trick, but an observation, a critical observation uh, that I've always used when thinking about the future of technologies is looking at the pace at which technological advancement is accumulating. In most cases, it's really uh, exponential. Most observers think that technological advancement is linear, and therefore they look at it and say it will take a long time to have any impact. So a little bit of mathematical understanding of the exponential equation, if you make that observation, you can easily do some projections and show that, in fact, even though the growth rates appear to be very, very slow and modest, at some point they are likely to pick up exponentially. And that is when they pick up exponentially, then you start to have significant impact uh, of that technology in society and debates associated with it. Now, now we are having debates uh, on the uh, impact of solar energy with the uh, utilities especially here in the United States, being concerned about people installing solar panels on their roofs. We have, we have, we have installed solar panels on our, on our roof, actually. Uh, but uh, again, just using this exponential logic, it's human minds are not really well uh, attuned to appreciating exponential trends. That's why we get surprises all the time. But that's, that's really one, uh, one area. And the other one is that in many cases, when you have new technologies, the potential for improvement is much higher in new technologies than it is in established ones. Uh, so and as you observe exponential growth and potential in new technologies, you also start to see at the same time uh, stabilization in improvement in established technologies. And that gives you an indication that the new ones at some point are likely to overtake or displace the old ones. Say, say one of the cases I look at in my book, uh, Innovation and Its Enemies, is the, the introduction of tractorization in the U.S. Uh, when tractors were introduced, they were very clumsy, very difficult to use. They broke down most of the time. But their competitor was horsepower, was horses, essentially. Uh, now, you could improve tractors over a two-year period, technically. It, it was very hard to improve horses to compete with tractors. So reached a point where the improvement in tractors was just occurring exponentially because knowledge accumulates exponentially, whereas breeding programs were extremely, extremely slow, and you couldn't breed any kind of bigger, more powerful horses that quickly. 
Um, so what are, the, are like the, the policy implications of, of the, the process that you're describing? And I have to imagine a lot of your career has been sent, spent sort of trying to affect you know, policy. You're not just sort of you know, an academic for the sake of, of advancing science, but you, your work throughout your career has had pretty you know, direct policy implications. Um, so how, how do you sort of translate the, the, um, the phenomenon you just described to affecting policy change? That's the question about public policy is really uh, important. And I end my book, in fact, with a, exactly a discussion on how you bring this to policymakers. Uh, the first is really to, trying to make political leaders uh, more comfortable with scientific assessments. Uh, and I refer here to scientific assessments as opposed to uh, scientific evidence in that you need a, a body of knowledge that is aggregated, that can give uh, political leaders a certain level of comfort in the trends. And this is work that is done very much by scientific and technical academies. It's and sort so of like those, what the, what the uh, UN uh, uh, climate change scientists, or the IPCC, right? That, that's basically what they do is write these kind of assessments. That's what they do, but I don't think they have made the transition to engaging a bit better with the policymakers because the solutions really are going to be in the domain of engineering and technological transformation of saying how can we, what are the substitutes to what we are doing and how can we get ownership uh, and and inclusive innovation in the adoption of those substitutes. Uh, so, so there's some element of that, but I, I see it more as what the National Academy of Sciences here or the National Academy of Engineering does in the United States, uh, where it does the assessment, but also explores options for action. And those options for action involve the parties that are going to get something done. It's not just a pronouncement that, uh, yes, we need, we need to make a shift, but actually getting people who can affect change together, which is the government, uh, academia, uh, private sector, and civil society organizations in some kind of collaborative uh, collaborative way. Um, so you're at, at Harvard now, um, and you uh, are teaching there, and uh, you're, you're writing books, but you know we discussed this earlier, you're also you know, part of the ongoing discussion, which you opened earlier about genetically modified organisms here in the United States and, and around the world. What uh, has the discussion uh, and the debate, the political debate here in the United States and, and in Europe, I think in particular, um, over GMOs uh, informed you uh, about um, like how how the, the process you just described earlier about scientific assessments and the, the ways in which the scientific community is, is perhaps failing to inform policymakers and, and the general public in a meaningful way? My view or my approach to understanding the, the debate uh, really was in, informed by what I thought were possibilities for African countries. So I published my first book, on genetically modified foods in 1989. It's called the Gene Hunters. This was seven years before GMOs were actually commercialized here in the United States. Uh, so, so, and what I was arguing in that book was that this technology has the potential to contribute to decentralized agricultural production that could be more, uh, more aligned with the way African agriculture is structured, uh, which is a uh, more 
small scale farmers and the technology itself is really scale scale neutral uh, and but to be be able to harness that technology you need to build capabilities domestically so that uh, it's the africans who are doing the research uh, themselves being in the universities they can partner with the foreign farms uh, but they should be taking the leadership because they know they would know better uh, what the priorities are what is more acceptable to farmers and farmers are likely to really trust their national scientists than they are likely to trust uh, foreign farms uh, unfortunately the debate ended up being defined uh, by the conflict between the US and the, and Europe uh, mm-hmm. and so Europe said uh, and they had a right to their views that they didn't need technologies that increased agricultural production because they already had food surpluses and that's i think a legitimate point to make uh, but when they started to export that view to african countries where the problem was exactly the opposite where low levels of productivity then you end up with really issues that i consider to be uh, questions of uh, ethics and diplomacy uh, in that the needs are quite different Mm-hmm. and therefore what is appropriate for europe may not necessarily be appropriate for for, for african countries so and i was the person yeah. in the united nations who was overseeing in fact the treaty under which uh, these debates were initiated so it was a really very very difficult uh, conversation to to be part of it knowing that the needs in uh, developing countries were different from the needs of the industrialized countries but the debate was being shaped and influenced by uh, conflicts among right. industrialized nations and and what's the legacy of of that debate today the and, and the dynamic you described in which Europe was generally sort of anti-gmo and african countries were perhaps neutral but influenced uh, by that european point of view what what's the legacy of that debate today i, I mean i know there are some countries in Africa that sort of ban, you know, G- GMO crops. I mean, what, like, how differentiated is the African experience with GMOs? I think the biggest legacy is, uh, in my view, and this is something I follow very closely, especially among African leaders, is the, under- the understanding that uh, they may have uh, followed the wrong path uh, by ac- just simply accepting what they are being told uh, more than or close to two decades ago. And the impact of that is a different approach to uh, emerging technologies. So we are going to see Africans really approach ema- new technologies like drones or 3D printing or artificial intelligence quite differently by first of all looking at the balance between the benefits and the risks and and here they are really they have been really influenced by the the store of mobile phones uh, because at the beginning of the introduction of mobile phones there are similar debates that mobile phones had the potential to cause cancer uh, but africans ended up being among the early adopters of mobile phones so they are using that as an as an inspirational model and it's a very interesting contrast between those two technologies which emerged almost at the same time and so African leaders now look back and say, we took one approach with the genetically modified crops and basically closed the door prematurely. 
uh, but here is another example where we were open open to the technology. We experimented, we built our own domestic capabilities, and we can see how we have used it. So the legacy is going to be how they approach the next generation of uh, of, of technologies. And this might include how they might deal with issues like gene editing, which is kind of the next uh, like the next frontier of uh, of genetic technologies. And is there any indication right now of how um, African countries are approaching gene editing? Yes, there is a very interesting one, which is uh, last, last actually early this year, the summit of the African Union uh, adopted a decision uh, calling for assessment of emerging technologies to understand the, both their benefits and risks. Uh, they are not specific to gene editing, but the decision was written in a way to accommodate gene editing and also to include other technologies like drones. You take drones, for example, you mentioned drones in the United States, people think of them purely in military terms. But uh, countries like Rwanda are now using uh, drones or planning to use drones to deliver medical uh, supplies, uh, blood to isolated regions. Uh, Rwanda is likely to build uh, one of the world's first drone airports, yeah. uh, purely for civilian applications. I saw it. I saw the uh, the blueprints for that. In I was at a, a conference in Dubai in February, and there was a little exhibition by the Rwandan government of their new kind of drone hubs, their drone airports for delivering medical supplies. It was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think the legacy, the legacy is that it was a big learning lesson for mm-hmm. for African countries uh, to basically the key lesson being that they needed to build up the capacity to do their own assessments la- rather than receive. Uh, advice uh, from other regions whose interests may be different from theirs. Um, so we're just about out of time. I, I did want to give you a moment though to plug what's next. I know you have your book coming out in a, in a couple months. Uh, what else are you working on right now? Besides, am, besides tweeting frenetically, by the way, which is a wonderful, wonderful way to follow your work, I should say. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The, 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 I'm, I'm working on another book, which is the companion volume to innovation and its enemies. And uh, the working title right now is uh, How Economies Succeed. Although some of my friends say that I should call it Innovation and Its Friends (laughs) as a companion volume. And it's really the other side of the argument, which is uh, looking at how you leverage technologies to transform uh, society uh, promote prosperity uh, through innovation and entrepreneurship. Uh, so it's kind of the positive side of the, the resistance. And I wanted to work on both of them because very often the promoters of new technologies ignore the fact that there are social barriers to the adoption. So, so I hope that these two books will be, uh, will be basically companion volumes. And I'm working with a colleague on another book, which which looks at the regional integration of African economies, you have a 54, 54 separate markets, and therefore Africa cannot benefit from economies of scale. But it's a, one of the most important uh, political innovations in Africa is the creation of these regional markets of getting countries to work together in Southern Africa, Eastern Africa, and uh, Western Africa. And this is really what's going to define the future of Africa. So if I look at Africa, 
say a decade from now, I, I really don't see countries. I see these regional groupings as the foundation for kind of larger markets. And that's where the, the potential for leveraging technology on a large scale really lies. Uh, well, Kalesos, thank you so much for your time. Fascinating. I, I look forward to reading your, your next books and uh, you know, watching the trends that you describe become manifest in the real world. Thank you for having me. This thank you so a, much. This is great. All right. Thank you for listening. Run and buy that new book by Kalesos. I'll post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Just one more thing, a big thank you to those of you who have gotten back to me about possible sponsorship opportunities for the podcast. Very exciting. Uh, if you are with an organization or an entity that you think might benefit in some way from reaching the podcast audience, which now numbers in the several thousands, or have some sort of affiliation with uh, me or with the podcast, just let me know uh, and we can work it out. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye.